Chapter 2 of the Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of H.M.S. Bounty, Its Cause and Consequences. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. The Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of H.M.S. Bounty by Sir John Barrow. Chapter 2 The Breadfruit. The happy shores without a law, where all partake the earth without dispute, and bread itself is gathered as fruit, where none contest the fields, the woods, the streams, the goldless age, where gold disturbs no dreams, inhabits or inhabited the shore, till Europe taught them better than before, bestowed her customs and amended theirs, but left her vices also to their heirs. Byron. In the year 1787, being seventeen years after Cook's return from his first voyage, the merchants and planters resident in London, and interested in the West India possessions, having represented to His Majesty that the introduction of the breadfruit tree into the islands of those seas to constitute an article of food would be of very essential benefit to the inhabitants, the King was graciously pleased to comply with their request, and a vessel was accordingly purchased and fitted at Deptford with the necessary fixtures and preparations for carrying into effect the benevolent object of the voyage. The arrangements for disposing the plants were undertaken, and completed in a most ingenious and effective manner by Sir Joseph Banks, who superintended the whole equipment of the ship with the greatest attention and assiduity till she was in all respects ready for sea. He named the ship Bounty, and recommended Lieutenant Bly, who had been with Captain Cook, to command her. Her burden was about two hundred and fifteen tons, and her establishment consisted of one lieutenant, who was commanding officer, one master, three warrant officers, one surgeon, two master's mates, two midshipmen, and thirty-four petty officers and seamen, making in all forty-four, to which were added two skilful and careful men, recommended by Sir Joseph Banks, to have the management of the plants intended to be carried to the West Indies, and others to be brought home for His Majesty's garden at Kew. One was David Nelson, who had served in a similar situation in Captain Cook's last voyage, the other William Brown, as an assistant to him. The object of all the former voyages to the South Seas, undertaken by command of His Majesty George the Third, was the increase of knowledge by new discoveries, and the advancement of science, more particularly of natural history and geography, the intention of the present voyage was to derive some practical benefit from the distant discoveries that had already been made, and no object was deemed more likely to realize the expectation of benefit than the breadfruit, which afforded to the natives of Otaheite so very considerable a portion of their food, and which it was hoped it might also do for the black population of the West India Islands. The breadfruit plant was no new discovery of either Wallace or Cook. So early as the year 1688, that excellent old navigator, Dampier, thus describes it. The breadfruit, as we call it, grows on a large tree, as big and high as our largest apple trees. It hath a spreading head, full of branches and dark leaves. The fruit grows on the boughs like apples. It is as big as a penny loaf, when wheat is at five shillings the bushel. It is of a round shape, and hath a thick, tough rind. When the fruit is ripe it is yellow and soft, 
and the taste is sweet and pleasant. The natives of Guam use it for bread. They gather it when full-grown, while it is green and hard. Then they bake it in an oven, which scorcheth the rind and makes it black. But they scrape off the outside black crust, and there remains a tender thin crust, and the inside is soft, tender, and white, like the crumb of a penny loaf. There is neither seed nor stone in the inside, but all is of a pure substance like bread. It must be eaten new, for if it is kept above twenty-four hours it grows harsh and choky, but it is very pleasant before it is too stale. This fruit lasts in season eight months in the year, during which the natives eat no other sort of food of bread kind. I did never see of this fruit anywhere but here. The natives told us that there is plenty of this fruit, growing on the rest of the Ladrone Islands, and I did never hear of it anywhere else. Lord Anson corroborates this account of the breadfruit, and says that while at Tinian it was constantly eaten by his officers and ship's company during their two months' stay, instead of bread, and so universally preferred that no ship's bread was expended in that whole interval. The only essential difference between Dampier's and Cook's description is, where the latter says, which is true, that this fruit has a core, and that the eatable part lies between the skin and the core. Cook says also that its taste is insipid, with a slight sweetness, somewhat resembling that of the crumb of wheaten bread mixed with a Jerusalem artichoke. From such a description it is not surprising that the West India planters should have felt desirous of introducing it into those islands, and accordingly the introduction of it was subsequently accomplished, notwithstanding the failure of the present voyage, it has not, however, been found to answer the expectation that had reasonably been entertained. The climate, as to latitude, ought to be the same, or nearly so, as that of Otaheite, but there would appear to be some difference in the situation or nature of the soil that prevents it from thriving in the West India Islands. At Otaheite and on several of the Pacific Islands, the bread-tree, which without the plowshare yields, the unripened harvest of unfurrowed fields, and bakes its unadulterated loaves without a furnace in unpurchased groves, and flings off famine from its fertile breast, a priceless market for the gathering guest, is to the natives of those islands a most valuable gift, but it has not been found to yield similar benefits to the West India Islands. On the 23rd December, 1787, the bounty sailed from Spithead, and on the 26th it blew a severe storm of wind from the eastward, which continued to the 29th, in the course of which the ship suffered greatly. One sea broke away the spare yards and spars out of the starboard main chains. Another heavy sea broke into the ship and stove all the boats. Several casks of beer that had been lashed upon deck were broke loose and washed overboard, and it was not without great difficulty and risk that they were able to secure the boats from being washed away entirely. Besides other mischief done to them in this storm, a large quantity of bread was damaged and rendered useless, for the sea had stove in the stern and filled the cabin with water. This made it desirable to touch at Tenerife, to put the ship to rights, where they arrived on the 5th January, 1788, and having refitted and refreshed, they sailed again on the 10th. I now, says Bly, divided the people into three watches, and gave the charge of the third watch to Mr. Fletcher Christian, one of the mates. I have always considered this a desirable regulation when circumstances will admit of it, 
and I am persuaded that unbroken rest not only contributes much towards the health of the ship's company, but enables them more readily to exert themselves in cases of sudden emergency. Wishing to proceed to Otaheite without stopping, and the late storm having diminished their supply of provisions, it was deemed expedient to put all hands on an allowance of two-thirds of bread. It was also decided that water for drinking should be passed through filtering stones that had been procured at Tenerife. I now, says Bly, made the ship's company acquainted with the object of the voyage, and gave assurances of the certainty of promotion to every one whose endeavours should merit it. Nothing, indeed, seemed to be neglected on the part of the commander to make his officers and men comfortable and happy. He was himself a thoroughbred sailor, and availed himself of every possible means of preserving the health of his crew. Continued rain and a close atmosphere had covered everything in the ship with mildew. She was therefore aired below with fires, and frequently sprinkled with vinegar, and every interval of dry weather was taken advantage of to open all the hatchways, and clean the ship, and to have all the people's wet things washed and dried. With these precautions to secure health, they passed the hazy and sultry atmosphere of the low latitudes without a single complaint. On Sunday, the 2nd of March, Lieutenant Bly observes, after seeing that every person was clean, divine service was performed according to my usual custom. On this day I gave to Mr. Fletcher Christian, whom I had before desired to take charge of the third watch, a written order to act as lieutenant. Having reached as far as the latitude of 36 degrees south, on the 9th March, the change of temperature, he observes, began now to be sensibly felt, there being a variation in the thermometer since yesterday of eight degrees. That the people might not suffer by their own negligence, I gave orders for their light tropical clothing to be put by, and made them dress in a manner more suited to a cold climate. I had provided for this before I left England, by giving directions for such clothes to be purchased as would be found necessary. On this day, on a complaint of the master, I found it necessary to punish Matthew Quintel, one of the seamen, with two dozen lashes, for insolence and mutinous behavior. Before this I had not had occasion to punish any person on board. The sight of New Year's Harbor, in Statenland, almost tempted him, he says, to put in, but the lateness of the season, and the people being in good health, determined him to lay aside all thoughts of refreshment until they should reach Otaheite. Indeed, the extraordinary care he had taken to preserve the health of the ship's company rendered any delay in this cold and inhospitable region unnecessary. They soon after this had to encounter tremendous weather off Cape Horn, storms of wind with hail and sleet, which made it necessary to keep a constant fire night and day, and one of the watch always attended to dry the people's wet clothes. This stormy weather continued for nine days, the ship began to complain, and required pumping every hour. The decks became so leaky that the commander was obliged to allot the great cabin to those who had wet berths, to hang their hammocks in. Finding they were losing ground every day, and that it was hopeless to persist in attempting a passage by this route, at this season of the year, to the Society Islands, and after struggling for thirty days in this tempestuous ocean, it was determined to bear away for the Cape of Good Hope. The helm was accordingly put aweather, to the great joy of every person on board. They arrived at the Cape on the 23rd of May, 
and having remained there thirty-eight days to refit the ship, replenish provisions, and refresh the crew, they sailed again on the 1st July, and anchored in Adventure Bay, in Van Diemen's Land, on the 20th August. Here they remained taking in wood and water till the 4th September, and on the evening of the 25th October they saw Otaheite, and the next day came to anchor at Mateva Bay, after a distance which the ship had run over by the log since leaving England of twenty-seven thousand and eighty-six miles, being on an average one hundred and eight miles each twenty-four hours. Of their proceedings in Otaheite a short abstract from Bly's journal will suffice. Many inquiries were made by the natives after Captain Cook, Sir Joseph Banks, and others of their former friends. One of my first questions, says Bly, was after our friend Omai, and it was a sensible mortification and disappointment to me to hear that not only Omai, but both the New Zealand boys who had been left with him, were dead. There appeared among the natives in general great good will towards us, and they seemed to be much rejoiced at our arrival. The whole day we experienced no instance of dishonesty, and we were so much crowded that I could not undertake to remove to a more proper station without danger of disobliging our visitors by desiring them to leave the ship. Otu, the chief of the district, on hearing of the arrival of the bounty, sent a small pig and a young plantain tree, as a token of friendship. The ship was now plentifully supplied with provisions, every man on board having as much as he could consume. As soon as the ship was secured, Lieutenant Bly went on shore with the chief, Poino, passing through a walk, delightfully shaded with breadfruit trees, to his own house, where his wife and her sister were busily employed staining a piece of cloth red. They desired him to sit down on a mat, and with great kindness offered him refreshments. Several strangers were now introduced, who came to offer their congratulations, and behaved with great decorum and attention. On taking leave, he says, the ladies, for they deserved to be called such from their natural and unaffected manners and elegance of deportment, got up, and taking some of their finest cloth and a mat, clothed me in the Otaheitan fashion, and then said, We will go with you to your boat, and each taking me by the hand amidst a great crowd, led me to the waterside, and then took their leave. In this day's walk, Bly had the satisfaction to see that the island had received some benefit from the former visits of Captain Cook. Two shaddocks were brought to him, a fruit which they had not, till Cook introduced it, and among the articles which they brought off to the ship and offered for sale were capsicums, pumpkins, and two young goats. In the course of two or three days, says he, an intimacy between the natives and the ship's company was become so general that there was scarcely a man in the ship who had not already his tail or friend. Nelson, the gardener, and his assistant, being sent out to look for young plants, it was no small degree of pleasure to find them report on their return that, according to appearances, the object of the voyage would probably be accomplished with ease. The plants were plentiful, and no apparent objection on the part of the natives to collect as many as might be wanted. Nelson had the gratification to meet with two fine shaddock trees which he had planted in 1777, and which were now full of fruit, but not ripe. Presents were now given to Otu, the chief of Matavei, who had changed his name to Tana. He was told that, on account of the kindness of his people to Captain Cook, and from a desire to serve him and his country, King George had sent out these valuable presents to him, 
"'And will you not, Tanah,' said Bly, "'send something to King George in return?' "'Yes,' he said, "'I will send him anything I have,' and then began to enumerate the different articles in his power, among which he mentioned the breadfruit. This was the exact point to which Bly was endeavouring to lead him, and he was immediately told that the breadfruit trees were what King George would like very much, on which he promised that a great many should be put on board. Hitherto no thefts had been committed, and Bly was congratulating himself on the improvement of the Otahitians in this respect, as the same facilities and the same temptations were open to them as before. The ship, as on former occasions, was constantly crowded with visitors. One day, however, the gudgeon of the rudder belonging to the large cutter was drawn out and stolen, without being perceived by the man who was stationed to take care of her, and as this and some other petty thefts, mostly owing to the negligence of the men, were commencing, and would have a tendency to interrupt the good terms on which they were with the chiefs, I thought, says Bly, it would have a good effect to punish the boat-keeper in their presence, and accordingly I ordered him a dozen lashes. All who attended the punishment interceded very earnestly to get it mitigated. The women shewed great sympathy, and that degree of feeling which characterizes the amiable part of their sex. The longer they remained on the island, the more they had occasion to be pleased with the conduct of the islanders, and the less incommoded either on board or when on shore, by the natives following them as at first. Into every house they wished to enter they always experienced a kind reception. The Otahitians, we are told, have the most perfect easiness of manner, equally free from forwardness and formality, and that there is a candor and sincerity about them that is quite delightful. When they offer refreshments, for instance, if they are not accepted, they do not think of offering them a second time, for they have not the least idea of that ceremonious kind of refusal which expects a second invitation. Having one day, says Bly, exposed myself too much in the sun, I was taken ill, on which all the powerful people, both men and women, collected round me, offering their assistance. For this short illness I was made ample amends by the pleasure I received from the attention and appearance of affection in these kind people. On one occasion the bounty had nearly gone ashore in a tremendous gale of wind, and on another did actually get aground, on both which accidents these kind-hearted people came in crowds to congratulate the captain on her escape, and many of them are stated to have been affected in the most lively manner, shedding tears while the danger in which the ship was placed continued. On the ninth December the surgeon of the bounty died from the effects of intemperance and indolence. This unfortunate man is represented to have been in a constant state of intoxication, and was so averse from any kind of exercise that he never could be prevailed on to take half a dozen hours upon deck at a time in the whole course of the voyage. Lieutenant Bly had obtained permission to bury him on shore, and on going with the chief Tanah to the spot intended for his burial place, I found, says he, the natives had already begun to dig his grave. Tanah asked if they were doing it right. There, says he, the sun rises, and there it sets. Whether the idea of making the grave east and west is their own, or whether they learnt it from the Spaniards who buried the captain of their ship on the island in 1774, there were no means of ascertaining. But it was certain they had no intimation of that kind from anybody belonging to the bounty. When the funeral took place, the chiefs and many of the natives attended the ceremony, and shewed great attention during the service. Many of the principal natives attended divine service on Sundays, 
and behaved with great decency. Some of the women at one time betrayed an inclination to laugh at the general responses, but, the captain says, on looking at them they appeared much ashamed. The border of the lowland, which is the breadth of about three miles, between the sea-coast and the foot of the hills, consists of a very delightful country, well covered with breadfruit and cocoa-trees, and strewed with houses in which are swarms of children playing about. It is delightful, Bly observes, to see the swarms of little children that are everywhere to be seen employed at their several amusements, some flying kites, some swinging in ropes suspended from the boughs of trees, others walking on stilts, some wrestling, and others playing all manner of antic tricks such as are common to boys in England. The little girls have also their amusements, consisting generally of havas or dances. On an evening, just before sunset, the whole beach abreast the ship is described as being like a parade, crowded with men, women, and children, who go on with their sports and amusements till nearly dark, when every one peaceably returns to his home. At such times, we are told, from three to four hundred people are assembled together, and all happily diverted, good-humoured, and affectionate to one another, without a single quarrel having ever happened to disturb the harmony that existed among these amiable people. Both boys and girls are said to be handsome and very sprightly. It did not appear that much pains were taken in their plantations, except those of the ava and the cloth plant. Many of the latter are fenced with stone, and surrounded with a ditch. In fact, nature has done so much for them, that they have no great occasion to use exertion in obtaining a sufficient supply of either food or raiment. Yet when Bly commenced taking up the breadfruit plants, he derived much assistance from the natives in collecting and pruning them, which they understood perfectly well. The behavior of these people on all occasions was highly deserving of praise. One morning, at the relief of the watch, the small cutter was missing. The ship's company were immediately mustered, when it appeared that three men were absent. They had taken with them eight stands of arms and ammunition, but what their plan was, or which way they had gone, no one on board seemed to have the least knowledge. Information being given of the route they had taken, the master was dispatched to search for the cutter, and one of the chiefs went with him. But before they had got halfway, they met the boat with five of the natives, who were bringing her back to the ship. For this service they were handsomely rewarded. The chiefs promised to use every possible means to detect and bring back the deserters, which in a few days some of the islanders had so far accomplished as to seize and bind them, but let them loose again on a promise that they would return to their ship, which they did not exactly fulfill, but gave themselves up soon after on a search being made for them. A few days after this a much more serious occurrence happened, that was calculated to give to the commander great concern. The wind had blown fresh in the night, and at daylight it was discovered that the cable, by which the ship rode, had been cut near the water's edge, in such a manner, that only one strand remained whole. While they were securing the ship, Tanah came on board, and though there was no reason whatever to suppose otherwise than that he was perfectly innocent of the transaction, nevertheless, says the commander, I spoke to him in a very peremptory manner, and insisted upon his discovering and bringing to me the offender. He promised to use his utmost endeavours to discover the guilty person. The next morning he and his wife came to me, and assured me that they had made the strictest inquiries without success. This was not at all satisfactory, and I behaved towards them with great coolness, at which they were much distressed, 
and the lady at length gave vent to her sorrow by tears. I could no longer keep up the appearance of mistrusting them, but I earnestly recommended to them, as they valued the King of England's friendship, that they would exert their utmost endeavours to find out the offenders, which they faithfully promised to do. Here Bligh observes it had since occurred to him that this attempt to cut the shift adrift was most probably the act of some of his own people, whose purpose of remaining at Otaheite might have been effectually answered without danger, if the ship had been driven on shore. At the time it occurred, he says, he entertained not the least thought of this kind, nor did the possibility of it enter into his ideas, having no suspicion that so general an indication, or so strong an attachment to these islands, could prevail among his people, as to induce them to abandon every prospect of returning to their native country. This afterthought of Bly will appear in the sequel to be wholly gratuitous, and yet he might naturally enough have concluded that so long and unrestrained an intercourse with a people among whom every man had his tayo or friend, among whom every man was free to indulge every wish of his heart, where from the moment he set his foot on shore he found himself surrounded by female allurements, in the midst of ease and indolence, and living in a state of luxury without submitting to any kind of labour, such enticements to a common sailor might naturally enough be supposed to create a desire for a longer residence in such a country. But this supposition is not borne out by subsequent events. The damage done to the cable was, in all probability, owing to its chafing over the rocky bottom. The bounty arrived on the 26th October, 1788, and remained till the 4th April, 1789. On the 31st March the commander says, Today all the plants were on board, being in 774 pots, 39 tubs, and 24 boxes. The number of breadfruit plants were 1,015, besides which we had collected a number of other plants. The avi, which is one of the finest flavored fruits in the world, the aya, which is a fruit not so rich, but of a fine flavor and very refreshing, the rata, not much unlike a chestnut, which grows on a large tree in great quantities. They are singly in large pods, from one to four inches broad, and may be eaten raw, or boiled in the same manner as Windsor beans, and so dressed are equally good. The ore ab, which is a very superior kind of plantain, all these I was particularly recommended to collect, by my worthy friend, Sir Joseph Banks. While these active preparations for departure were going on, the good chief Tana, on bringing a present for King George, could not refrain from shedding tears. During the remainder of their stay, there appeared among the natives an evident degree of sorrow that they were so soon to leave them, which they showed by a more than usual degree of kindness and attention. The above-mentioned excellent chief, with his wife, brothers, and sister, requested permission to remain on board for the night previous to the sailing of the bounty. The ship was crowded the whole day with the natives, and she was loaded with presents of cocoa-nuts, plantains, breadfruits, hogs, and goats. Contrary to what had been the usual practice, there was this evening no dancing or mirth on the beach, such as they had long been accustomed to, but all was silent. At sunset the boat returned from landing to Na and his wife, and the ship made sail, bidding farewell to Otaheite, where, Bly observes, For twenty-three weeks we had been treated with the utmost affection and regard, and which seemed to increase in proportion to our stay. 
that we were not insensible to their kindness the events which followed more than sufficiently prove for to the friendly and endearing behavior of these people may be ascribed the motives for that event which affected the ruin of an expedition that there was every reason to hope would have been completed in the most fortunate manner the morning after their departure they got sight of Hawhini, and a double canoe soon came alongside containing ten natives among them was a young man who recollected captain bligh and called him by name having known him when here in the year seventeen eighty with captain cook in the resolution several other canoes arrived with hogs yams and other provisions which they purchased this person confirmed the account that had already been received of omai and said that of all the animals which had been left with omai the mare only remained alive that the seeds and plants had been all destroyed except one tree but of what kind that was he could not satisfactorily explain a few days after sailing from this island the weather became squally and a thick body of black clouds collected in the east a waterspout was in a short time seen at no great distance from the ship which appeared to great advantage from the darkness of the clouds behind it the upper part is described as being about two feet in diameter and the lower about eight inches it advanced rapidly towards the ship when it was deemed expedient to alter the course and to take in all the sails except the foresail soon after which it passed within ten yards of the stern making a rustling noise but without their feeling the least effect from its being so near the rate at which it travelled was judged to be about ten miles per hour going towards the west in the direction of the wind and in a quarter of an hour after passing the ship it dispersed as they passed several low islands the natives of one of them came out in their canoes and it was observed that they all spoke the language of otaheite presents of iron beads and a looking-glass were given to them but it was observed that the chief on leaving the ship took possession of everything that had been distributed one of them showed some signs of dissatisfaction but after a little altercation they joined noses and were reconciled the bounty anchored at anamooka on the twenty-third april and an old lame man named tape whom bligh had known here in seventeen seventy seven and immediately recollected came on board along with others from different islands in the vicinity this man having formerly been accustomed to the english manner of speaking their language the commander found he could converse with him tolerably well he told him that the cattle which had been left at Tongatambu had all bred and that the old ones were yet living being desirous of seeing the ship he and his companions were taken below and the breadfruit and other plants were shown to them on seeing which they were greatly surprised i landed says bligh in order to procure some breadfruit plants to supply the place of one that was dead and two or three others that were a little sickly i walked to the west part of the bay where some plants and seeds had been sown by captain cook and had the satisfaction to see in a plantation close by about twenty fine pineapple plants but no fruit this not being the proper season they told me that they had eaten many of them that they were very fine and large and that at tongatabu there were great numbers numerous were the marks of mourning with which these people disfigure themselves such as bloody temples their heads deprived of most of the hair and which was worse almost all of them with a loss of some of their fingers several fine boys not above six years of age had lost both their little fingers and some of the men had parted with the middle finger of the right hand 
A brisk trade soon began to be carried on for yams. Some plantains and breadfruit were likewise brought on board, but no hogs. Some of the sailing canoes, which arrived in the course of the day, were large enough to contain not less than ninety passengers. From these the officers and crew purchased hogs, dogs, fowls, and shaddocks, yams very fine and large. One of them actually weighed above forty-five pounds. The crowd of natives had become so great the next day, Sunday, twenty-six, that it became impossible to do anything. The watering party were therefore ordered to go on board, and it was determined to sail. The ship was accordingly unmoored and got under way. A grapnel, however, had been stolen, and Bly informed the chiefs that were still on board, that unless it was returned, they must remain in the ship, at which they were surprised, and not a little alarmed. I detained them, he says, till sunset, when their uneasiness and impatience increased to such a degree that they began to beat themselves about the face and eyes, and some of them cried bitterly. As this distress was more than the grapnel was worth, I could not think of detaining them longer, and called their canoes alongside. I told them they were at liberty to go, and made each of them a present of a hatchet, a saw, with some knives, gimlets, and nails. This unexpected present, and the sudden change in their situation, affected them not less with joy than they had before been with apprehension. They were unbounded in their acknowledgments, and I have little doubt that we parted better friends than if the affair had never happened. From this island the ship stood to the northward all night, with light winds. On the next day, the twenty-seventh, at noon, they were between the islands of Tefoa and Kutu. Thus far, says Bly, the voyage had advanced in a course of uninterrupted prosperity, and had been attended with many circumstances equally pleasing and satisfactory. A very different scene was now to be experienced. A conspiracy had been formed, which was to render all our past labor productive only of extreme misery and distress. The means had been concerted and prepared with so much secrecy and circumspection that no one circumstance appeared to occasion the smallest suspicion of the impending calamity. The result of an act of piracy the most consummate and atrocious that was probably ever committed. How far Bly was justified in ascribing the calamity to a conspiracy will be seen hereafter. The following chapter will detail the facts of the mutinous proceedings as stated by the lieutenant in his own words. End of chapter 2